1: So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, We're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Kimberly Bussi. She's an assistant professor, uh, part of precision medicine at Midwestern University. Uh, She's also adjunct faculty in mathematical and natural sciences at the New College, uh, ASU adjunct faculty as well. And part of the Beyond Center, Fundamental Concepts in Science, also part of ASU. So, Kim, thanks for coming.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, if you would, tell me about your your research. What are you working on?
3: So, I work on cancer and specifically trying to understand why cancers rearrange their genomes. Why do we have large-scale chromosome evolution in cancer? And so, my lab is looking at cancer from the perspective of the atavism theory, which postulates that cancer initiation and progression represent reversions to ancestral unicellular phenotypes. And we look at testing the predictions of the atavism theory. So one of the things that we're looking at in our our lab is The role of stress-induced mutagenesis, can we detect it in genome sequences from tumors and can we figure out the mechanisms and how conserved are they from the bacteria where this was originally discovered? We're also looking at essential genes and whether genes that are needed for organisms that... So essential genes, let me back up. Essential genes are genes that are required for organisms to develop and reproduce. And there has been a large effort in the past 10 years to catalog what those genes are across multiple different species. And what is becoming apparent as we look at that data is that genes that are essential for multicellular organisms don't have to be essential for unicellular organisms. And it's looking like from working with cancer cells that the reverse is true. And so my uh, lab is starting to look at essential genes and try to figure out what genes are essential for unicellular life versus multicellular life and how we can then use those networks to go after cancer.
2: Well, a lot of life, even if it's unicellular, is really multicellular. Like you know, bacteria are mostly in biofilms. I mean, there's a lot of collectivism even amongst unicellular organisms. So, how are you defining something that's truly unicellular?
3: So, it being unicellular with essentiality is that it's only essential in our studies in E. coli, baker's yeast, and fission yeast, and yeah, fission yeast. So, *Saccharomyces* and *Pombe*. So. If it's if it's essential in those species, but we don't see it essential, and say mice or arabidoptus thaliana or zebrafish or Drosophila, then it's restricted to being unicellular and its essentiality.
2: Well, why is it important to compare what you consider to be essential genes in these two types of creatures? What well, what will that tell you if you if you're able to figure out what's in one and not the other?
3: So one of the predictions of the atavism theory is, is if this is true, then cancer has reverted back to relying on those unicellular essentials. That then opens a therapeutic window for us because we can target those biological processes in the tumor. And the cancer is going to evolve. Anytime that we actually apply a therapy to a tumor, we are asking a Organism that's key phenotype is to adapt to really try to figure out a way around that therapy. So, we want to apply therapies smartly such that if they figure out a way around it, that way around is by becoming more communal, more cooperative, returning towards multicellularity. Because when cancers do that, then you see they don't grow as fast or they quit growing and they aren't as dangerous for the patient. So the idea is to steer the tumor evolution there.
2: Well, what kind of chroma, um, chromosome remodeling goes on and, you know, are they particular chromosomes favored and what can you observe? How does this drive changes in phenotype?
3: So if you can change it, cancer probably does. <laughs> in some form or another. So a lot of cancers, particularly cancers of adulthood, are characterized by large scale chromosome rearrangements. So we get multiple copies of whole genomes of which we then lose and gain copies of different things. So for example, chromosome seven is a chromosome that is almost always gained in no matter what solid tumor you look at. And it's often gained in multiple copies. Other things that happen is you will have chromosomes that swap bits between each other. So they translocate, they will delete certain bits, they will rearrange a bunch of bits. And that rearrangement changes how readily the chromatin is accessible to the cell to be able to transcribe genes and and make proteins and things. So when we, from a cytogenetic perspective, there's this massive chromosome evolution and chaos. When we look at cancer cells from the perspective of doing what's called cell CT, which is what it sounds like doing basically a CT scan on single cells. It's done with light rather than with x-rays, but the concept is the same. When you look at the nuclei of normal cells and you ask questions like, how dense is the chromatin packed? And how does that change as I move myself through the 3D nucleus? The changes in density, so the transitions are pretty gradual. They actually look fairly ordered. And you go from things that we postulate are pretty open, they're not very dense, and so there's probably lots of transcription happening, to things that are very dense, which is heterochromatin, and things are shut down. And this is an area of the genome that the cell has said, nope, you can't get to the genes or the stuff that's there in cancer cells, this massive chromosome evolution leads to changing in the packing in the nucleus such that transitions are very, very abrupt. So you go from things that are not very dense and regions of the genome that are not very dense to regions of the genome and the nucleus that are very dense in their appearance. And there isn't a gradual transition. It's it's abrupt. It's kind of like the cancer has said, here's the stuff you're allowed to access and nothing else do you get to have. It's locked it away.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world.
3: Now, back to the show. So those are kind of the changes that that happen, and they are sequence changes as well as epigenetic changes. So they're changes in how um, the epigenome causes the chromatin to conform.
2: Wait a second. If the epigenome changes, that would silence or you know open up certain areas. you think that's what allows the underlying shifts and changes, or do the underlying shifts and changes happen, and then you know, epigenetics happens after that and they get marked up as they go. Like which follows or is it reciprocating back and
3: forth? It's it's reciprocating back and forth. I think that that you get the initiating events here are still a mystery. You know, if, if you are a subscriber to the somatic mutation theory of cancer, getting cancer is just sheer dumb luck, right? It's a random mutation somewhere. That may still be true under the atavism theory, but The idea is that once you've started that, once a cell has initiated responding to its environment by accessing a unicellular response rather than its multicellular response, that then leads to changes that then facilitate being able to rearrange your genome, facilitate being able to hardwire that in so that you don't go back. And that is a complex interplay between structural rearrangement and epigenetic and epigenomic alterations. Well,
2: what does this look like in primary tumors versus metastases? Is it different? How different?
3: It is different. Metastases, generally speaking, are more complex. They also tend to be more heterogeneous. So there tends to be um, in solid tumors a lot of cell-to-cell variability in the structural uh, arrangement of the genome. So in cytogenetics, we call them non-clonal aberrations. And the clonal stuff is the stuff that we can see, generally speaking, in at least 2 out of 20 cells if it's a gain and 3 out of 20 cells if it's a loss of something if it's a structural abnormality then it's 2 out of 20 so we're talking in roughly 10% 15% of the t- cell population but we often in solid tumors don't find any two cells that look exactly alike so every cell has a its own unique kind of genome and as tumors metastasize they go through both selective clonal sweeps so they'll, they'll see some sort of stress that, that takes out a set of clones and selects for things. And so those aberrations will become what we call clonal, but they also induce a lot of shuffling, trying to figure out how to survive and diversify whatever environmental stress they're seeing.
2: So a cancer and a tumor... Do you think it's an, its its own distinct life form that has its own homeostatic drive and the cells act in concert you know, as part of the whole? Do they have allegiance to the whole, the tumor? And if so, when, when does this arise? In a few cells, in a million, in a billion, is it emergent and when?
3: I do think we're dealing with a speciation event. I don't think that, that cancer cells, you can look at them. Set genetically, but like if you were to hand me a cancer karyotype and say a, a picture from a cell and say, is this human? I would say, well, it was.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
3: It was derived from human, but you wouldn't be able to take those nuclei out and get a functional human being out of them, which is the definition of speciation, right? So I do think we're dealing with a new species. I think we're dealing with a paracell a, a unicellular parasitic single cell collective. Like it it's a it is a collective. There is some facultative cooperation, but I don't know that there is a drive to create homeostasis within a tumor the way we think of it within an organism like a worm or human beings or, or mice. I think that, that there is how much specialization that there is within that collective is, is up for grabs. As for how soon it happens, that speciation event is happening fairly early on, you know, few hundred cells, if that. And it takes about that many cells to hit the point of, you know, the tumor is going to collapse if it doesn't change its behavior. So the cells on the inside can no longer get nutrients because of diffusion. So at that point, either it becomes a single single cell collective or it dies off.
2: Well, do you think there's, again, quorum sensing within a tumor? Like, you know, let's say a tumor now develops a hypoxic or an anoxic region, the call for angiogenesis, does it come from the tumor as a whole or just localized cells that their microenvironments turn to hypoxic or anoxic? You know, what kind of signaling, in, intratumular, intratumor signaling you think is going on and what's being signaled?
3: In the case of hypoxia, yes. I mean, you asked about quorum sensing. I suspect that there is is some degree of quorum sensing happening. It isn't my area of expertise, so I don't, like, I'm hesitant to to speculate a whole bunch without having read the literature well, but the, I suspect that it is it is a local response that then permeates, particularly if it has to, if it is something that perturbs the resting membrane potential of the cells in the region, much of quorum sensing in bacteria is facilitated by calcium flows. And so I suspect that if there's quorum sensing in tumors, that it, it works essentially the same way, that there are some level of ionic flow back and forth between cells that alters resting membrane potential that then allows cells to adjust. And what they probably are adjusting is their surrounding microenvironment from the sense of saying, you know, let's pump out even more stuff that the cells that surround them see as indicative, indicative of being hypoxic. And those cells still have the ability to respond to that hypoxic environment. As a multicellular organism would, which would then be to start to kind of go, well, maybe we should grow some more blood vessels. There's evidence that VEGF is coming and some of that is coming from the tumor, but you know, how much of this is, is the tumor giving it, and how much is the tumor goosing? the microenvironment into doing it is still, I think, an open question.
2: So I know this would be expensive and difficult, but if if you were able to do single cell sequencing on a whole bunch of tumors and map them spatially from the center out, let's say they're spheroid and look at the, you know, the chromatin or the, you know, the chromosome remodeling as a function of, you know, space from the center outwards and map that, what do you think you would see? And what would that tell you? Is there orchestration going on? Is, you know What's the complexity of it look like? Or is it a jumble of like independent cells, but there's subdomains of organization? Like What would you imagine you'd see?
3: I think I would imagine that I would see... That's a great question. I've never thought about that. I would imagine that I would see some level of subdomain organization between cells that are closely closer related to each other. The idea being that that as these cells evolve as their genomes evolve that there will be pockets that evolve in one direction and say for example they get a little bit better at managing glucose or they flip the switch and they can do they undergo the warburg warburg effect so yeah there's plenty of oxygen around but they're going to rely on glycolysis for their energy production and for their primarily their their biomolecule production and that set of genomic, like understanding how those things I'd actually, I, I think I would want to do the experience of rather than sequencing their genomes, I'd want to sequence their transcriptomes. And the reason being is that my graduate student, uh, Jocelyn Dunham, has been doing some work looking at the association of topological domains with variability of gene expression within those domains. So not actually asking, does the average or the median gene expression change like from normal to cancer or from normal domain to what looks like a disrupted topological domain, but looking at the variability and this goes back to this idea that came about now 20 years ago when we were first starting with with transcriptome experiments and people noticed that there were seemed to be expression neighborhoods, right so regions of the genome where there were basal levels of transcription that could be tuned up or down. So not all genes have the same level of transcription in the region, but it was tuned up or down off this basal level. And there's the stuff that's expressed all the time. There's the stuff that's never expressed at all and about three grades in between. And with the advent of the discovery of topological domains, which are regions of the genome that interact more closely with each other than they do with other regions of the genome, the question is, well, if you disrupt a topological domain, what do you do to the gene expression within that region? And Jocelyn has been looking at does the variability of the expression so is what you're changing not necessarily a net level but actually how what your scale of expression can be within the region and so. What, I would what, is
2: act- a, um, what is a topological domain? Is that a, a small area that has a certain morphology, a collection of cells within the tumor, or what is it?
3: So it's a region of the genome where the genes or the, the loci within the region actually physically interact with each other within the nucleus more often than they interact with other regions of the genome. So it's, it's often conceptualized as like looping, but we really mm, don't know looping. three groups. What do I mean by looping?
2: Yeah, I said, mm, I understand what you mean. I'm picturing <laughs> exactly. the loops. Because I know the loops, it, it it brings disparate parts of the genome together
3: right. and
2: they can be transcribed together. So I, I guess you're saying there's domains that tend to loop with others more. Right. Um, and there's ones that are, are more isolated.
3: Right, exactly. And so the question is, if you're in a TAD, right, in a topological domain, and you've got these loops and things that interact more with each other than they do with other regions of the genome. If you then have a structural rearrangement that disrupts that TAD, so say you get a translocation between two chromosomes, and so now you've disrupted that TAD, what happens to the gene expression? Do you form a new TAD between on these new derivative chromosomes that have, you know, for example, part of chromosome four and part of chromosome eight stuck together.
2: Well, maybe the topological domains governs how you get chromosome remodeling. It wouldn't allow it to happen, let's say, on a part of a chromosome that has many, many intersecting, you know, transcriptable, transcribable elements. Maybe it happens on, or maybe when it does happen, it takes along with it a whole set of dependent or topolog- topologically associated, you know, genes that get transcribed maybe that governs it.
3: It's possible what we're seeing in the data is that when we see variability in gene expression for genes that have been localized to a topological domain, there is evidence of a structural alteration in that domain. So there's evidence of a double-stranded break and a, and a break point of some sort. So the I don't think these domains are protected from rearrangement, but I think think one of the, the things that we have to think about when we think about structural rearrangements of genomes in cancer is just because you have a translocation doesn't mean you create a fusion project, product. So it's not just taking the bit of gene A and putting it on a bit of gene B and getting a new thing out of it. It could simply be. Changing the scale of transcriptional s- response within that region of the genome that then gives those cells the ability to respond to their environment differently.
2: Yeah, it's complicated. Just to make it just to make it simpler, if you look at a tumor and it's heterogeneous, I would think the localized microbiome around each cell of the tumor would be slightly different. There's different trading of you know metabolites. So what would that look like? I mean, I know that even be harder to get at, but what does that look like when you have thousands or millions or billions of different slightly different localized microbiomes in a tumor all associating with their neighbor cell and you know, again, trading with them, et cetera? What what do you think that would show or
3: well I think that it we have to think about those those localized microbiomes or those localized networks as truly in the sense of of being networks. So one of the keys things about biological systems is that they are highly nonlinear dynamic systems, which means that we can't treat them or expect them to be deterministic necessarily in their behavior because we because of the way the nonlinearity interacts with the dynamics. That said, what has become apparent as you look at Networks, whether it's a network, a molecular network within a cell, a network of cells, a network that is describing a, the metabolic output of a microbiome, is that you have the dynamics that are happening in the network, and that output of that network becomes a node in the network that's the next scale up. And so I think that... To get at your question, we have to think about tumors and, and their localized microbiomes in terms of, well, what's the net output, right, of that microbiome? Meta- probably metabolically, is that little localized microbiome something that makes it much harder for immune cells to, to migrate their way in? Is it something that frees up ion flows so that the cancer cells in the area have a particularly depolarized resting membrane potential and therefore kind of a very stem like state?
2: You know what I'm thinking? I wonder if the, this would be a cool experiment. You know, if you have a tumor in vitro, if you can keep it going and you look at its microbiome, it, I'm wondering because of the heterogeneity of a tumor if it would prevent biofilm formation because there's less like-like associations, you know, throughout the tumor because again you have different localized microbiomes. It might hinder these like-like associations and the formation of large biofilms. I wonder if that's been looked at or observed.
3: I think it's an interesting question. I I know that there is evidence that there are a lot of bacteria and a lot of microbes that like necrotic tumor cores, which makes culturing tumors sometimes really interesting. (laughs)
2: Well, I guess if you have a hypoxic or an anoxic zone in certain parts of the tumor, you'd end up with microbes that never normally are present in the body because there's hopefully no anoxic areas. I'm sure there's some maybe hypoxic ones, but I would think you get a whole unique different regime in those areas. You know, that's not normal.
3: Right. And then the question becomes what do they what do they produce? Are they part of the part of how tumors evade the innate immune system, which is the first thing that's supposed to take them out? Or are oh. they part of the signal that convinces tumors that they need to alter how they present their MHC class 1 proteins on their surface so that an NK cell doesn't come along and go, "Oh, you're sick. You need to die.
2: Yeah, it would also be interesting if you put again a tumor in vitro in a dish, then introduce the virus that normally kills, you know, that cell type and observe it. Does it preferentially? I guess suffice to say, it's like crazy complex here. You know? Well, it'd be nice if if you know someone spent. I don't know how much it would cost, but wouldn't it be cool if you had, let's say, a thousand resected tumors of a certain type? They did single cell sequencing on them, you know, like thousands of different sequences and looked at it 3D. And then you were able to see that. And again, all the metabolomics and all the transcriptomics of, you know, let's say, again, a thousand resected tumors. And you had all these omics data on all of them. Yeah. looked at it. I wonder what you'd see.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's sort of our holy grail right now in cancer research is, is how do we technologically be able to get as much data as possible for at a cellular level from these, these tumors? Because it's a non-trivial thing to assay it, a cell's genome and also assay its transcriptome while also looking at its metabolome and looking at its proteome. And we yeah. didn't even talk about its lipome. Oh, or, I didn't even know there was that. <laughs> and, and or the, the extracellular vesicles that it's secreting.
2: Oh, the profiles, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: Right.
2: So. Well, in that vein of EVs, what kind of cell-to-cell communication do you think there is between primary and metastases? Do you think there's orchestration by the primary? Or again, what kind of communication back and forth? Is it a network where now if there's multiple metastatic sites, the uh, whole tumor burden acts as one?
3: I think that, that it is concerted, yes, right, that there is definite communication between the metastatic sites and the primary. And we know that if we debulk, even for patients who have unresectable primaries, if we can remove their metastases, they do better. Oh, so,
2: if you compare that to just debulking the primary, I've heard some people do far worse. It activates metastases to grow. But are you saying if you debulk the uh, metastases and leave the primary, that that's a better outcome?
3: It, they can do better. Yeah. The, the idea is to reduce the tumor burden, right? And generally speaking, if you talk to the surgeons, you know, it, what determines where they reduce that burden depends entirely on what they can get to right? It's restricted by what they can actually surgically resect.
2: Hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm sorry to run you all over the place, but getting back to your your research, like what, I don't know, what insights have you gotten about the chromatin remodeling? What do you see that like is crazy or amazing to you?
3: Well, we see, we have signal of stress-induced mutation. So, which is, is... Really awesome from the perspective of trying to address, well, why these large scale chromosome rearrangements? So, in bacterium, stress induced mutation happens when bacterium face DNA damage that leads to double strand breaks, which is the worst kind of break that you can get in your DNA, and an environmental stress that is significant. So, they're starving or the pH is really off for them or they're starving and the pH is off, right? Similar environmental stresses in multicellular organisms lead to apoptosis. So when a cell in your a normal cell in your body sees something that is that stressful and they're also undergoing DNA damage, they commit cell suicide for the good of the body. Bacterium can't do that. They're a unicellular organism. If they commit cell suicide and all the cells are seeing kind of nobody's fit right? for the environment, then they die. They go extinct. So rather than commit cell suicide, what they do is do stress-induced mutation. So instead of faithfully repairing their DNA double-strand break, they induce a round of replication repair that repairs that DNA double-strand break, but it also leads to amplifications and deletions of the chromosome, and it leads to a characteristic pattern of mutations around the double-strand break that are close, like you find the most of them nearest to the double-strand break. And as you move away in the genome uh, from the double-strand break, they taper off, but they stay above background for a megabase, (laughs) So you get this sort of self-inflicted damage then is a way of boosting a mutation rate. So this is a way of trying to change the genome enough that maybe you get something that works for the stress That you're under as a unicellular organism, as a bacterium, and you survive. So, 90% of your colony, your compatriots may not make it, or even more than that. But as long as a few stumble upon through this mutation process, things that allow them to be more fit for their environment, the bacterium doesn't go extinct. So, we have looked in the whole genome data of about 2,000 tumors for this signature of clustered SNVs where you've got more of SNVs, more mutations in towards the center of the cluster and less at the edge. And we've developed a score. It's called the stressed introduced heterogeneity score, the SITH score. And it characterizes how peaked these um, clusters are so how how really towards having more mutations towards the center of the cluster and less towards the ends are they? And we can look at that score from the perspective of the all the clusters that we find in the tumor or on a cluster by cluster basis and we see some really interesting patterns with that score. so, the first pattern we see is when we look at it as like an overall summary of the tumor, which what we're measuring there is sort of the average cluster shape, if you will. When we look at that increases in SIF score in, is if you're in a primary tumor, then that actually bodes really well for patient survival. So it's it like the the hazards ratio is somewhere around 0.5 so it
2: what, what do you mean the is this just a degree of heterogeneity can you call this metric that or is it not
3: so there is another way for us to look at heterogeneity and that's what so when we look at this metric on a cluster by cluster basis then we're looking at heterogeneity okay so when we look at it as a as on a a all the clusters taken together in the tumor basis. Then when it's a, in a primary tumor and it's high, it's protective. Those tumors seem to look like they're going to evolve themselves off cliffs. But if it's high and it's in a metastatic or a recurrent tumor, it's really bad. So it gives something like a five-fold increase in, in poor prognosis, right? So Yeah, that's
2: it, weird that it's opposite in, in primary versus metastatic sites. Why do you think that is?
3: So I think in the primary tumors that the overall Cis score is looking at the relative contribution of adaptive mutation relative to other mutational processes that are happening in the tumor. And when it's in primary tumors and it's really, really peaked, Like they haven't figured out how to do it real well yet. So they're putting lots of small, tiny clusters together, which means they're not adapting very well to their environment and they're likely going to peter out. Whereas when we look at it in metastases or recurrences, that score actually drops. I mean, it doesn't drop a lot, but relative to the primaries, it drops. But the clusters are bigger, right? So you aren't getting little tiny clusters of three or four mutations, you're getting clusters of six, 10, 20 mutations, and they're still peaked. So that indicates that the tumor is primed to adapt by doing stress-induced mutation.
2: But if if I consider uh, cancer as a continual adaptation that turns into maladaptation, it's not random, it's not just mutations. If I look at the microenvironment of metastases versus primary, it's a lot more alien and foreign you know, for metastases, they're in with different cell types, and they're probably mm-hmm. continu- continuously getting the signaling of, you're not supposed to be here. Our meta- metabolic processes are different from what you're doing. So I would think that would force the, the tumors and, you know, the metastatic sites to, uh, to proliferate more and to differentiate more and to become more heterogeneous in response to that, again, a more alien, probably hostile environment.
3: Yeah. And I think that, that adaptive mutation is one way that they do that. So they're seeing a lot more things that induce stress-induced mutation, and therefore, they when their Cis score is high, it means they do it well, right? When we look at the cluster, what's interesting is that we lose this distinction between primary and metastasis and recurrence when we actually look at Cis scores on a cluster by cluster basis, and then look at the interquartile range. Of those scores on a cluster by cluster basis. So what that does is that kind of gives you sort of a, a measure of the variance of cluster shape. And when we do that, it doesn't matter whether it's a primary or a metastasis or recurrence. If you have a lots of variance in cluster shapes, the patients do poorly.
2: Because it's a signal that things are being, I guess, figured out. And that's why there's all these different cluster shapes and all this heterogeneity because The tumor is is trying everything it can. It's exploring its its information space as much as it can to try to figure out how to continue and proliferate and grow. Exactly. Interesting. What about susceptibility to chemo, susceptibility to radiation? Is anyone looking at, you know, overlaying like the cis score like you have and again susceptibility to
3: these treatments? We haven't. That's one of the things we would like to do. We have not looked at that. I, you know, part of it is trying to get a hold of the data sets, right? These are expensive. If you hold, it's like, it no longer costs $50,000 to do a whole genome sequence, which is what it did 10 years ago when I did my first set of three whole genome sequences for tumors, but, and that was per tumor, <laughs> but it's still pricey. Right. And to get high quality data from that is appropriately clinically annotated, that has good follow up, where we really do know what the patient sought, saw and when they saw it. So there are some projects that are in the process of generating those data sets. And I am looking forward to being able to get a hold of that data and apply our method to it to see what happens. Because my prediction is that that if we start with our primary, that what we'll see is the SithIQR IQR go up as tumors see treatment and come back.
2: Yeah, I'm um, sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, very good. Um, I appreciate you being on. I know I've asked you a lot of different things. What, what's the best way for people to find out more about your research?
3: Where can they go? So um, I have a research site on Midwesterns. They can look up me up via the faculty there. And there's a link to my bibliography, um, which I keep up to date, which has all of the latest research that we're doing and that we've published. And then I try to keep that summary that's available on the Midwestern site up to date as well.
2: Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.